Hey, I'm Mark A. Altman. And I'm Darren Dockerman. And I'm Ashley Miller. And we're here to tell you about an exciting new documentary from, well, us. To celebrate the upcoming 60th anniversary of the filming of The Cage, we put together the ultimate love letter to Star Trek, in which we boldly go to filming locations from almost six decades of Star Trek. We are going to crisscross the globe, or at least Southern California, in search of the coolest Star Trek filming locations. We're not only going to tell you the history of these amazing locations, but we're going to tell you about the episodes that were filmed there and give you details you never knew. It's a regular landing party from Vasquez Rocks to the Sepulveda Reclamation Dam to Bronson Caves and uh, Golden Gate Park and even the Embarcadero where Chekhov looked for the nuclear vessels. You'll go with us on an incredible adventure as we crisscross the country in search of adventure and uh, food occasionally while sharing stories about the making of hundreds of incredible locations and episodes. Plus, you never know who'll drop by, drop in, drop out to share their memories and maybe even their food. We've already announced burlesque superstar, Hazel Honeysuckle. But you can expect an array of Star Trek stars, writers, directors, and super fans, not just ourselves, as featured on our hit podcast, Inglorious Trexperts, to drop by and share their own stories as well. Well, we are truly going to run because we are going to make this film and we're going to make it happen today with your help. There may not be money in the future, but there is now. Send us your gold plus latinum because this is a chance to help us make the trek today. And rest assured, this is a team of industry professionals who, like Captain Jellico, will get it done. As uh, most of you know, Mark's Greatest Geek Year Ever documentary just debuted to rave reviews on The CW. And he has been a showrunner and writer-producer on such popular series as Pandora, The Librarians, and Castle. And I personally was shocked to learn that Darren was an associate producer and visual effects supervisor on some movie called Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. And he's a Hollywood concept designer on major feature films and TV series, including Master and Commander, X3, and Star Trek Picard. You may not know this, but Ashley Edward Miller is the screenwriter for such blockbusters as Thor, X-Men First Class, and the showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood on Netflix. Join us on the ultimate road trip, or is it a road trek? Either way, keep on trekking, ingloriously of course. And join us on Kickstarter or at makethetrek.com and trekspertsplus.com for more information on how to make the trek happen. Would you like to know more? I, I would. Sure would. Sure you would. Join us at San Diego Comic-Con, GalaxyCon in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Las Vegas's 57-year mission. For more details all summer long, along with the super toys, uh, and grow stronger through the share. <laughs> Get ready. This summer, the Inglorious Live Tour continues. I am ready. Trek... Are you so ready? ready? Are you <laughs> sure you're ready? ready? Well, we're coming to a city near you. Don't miss Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Dockerman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, as we descend 
on San Diego Comic-Con, July 20th to 23rd. Oh GalaxyCon, Raleigh, 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 North Raleigh. Carolina, in uh, July 27th through July 30th. Then we're going to be getting lucky in Las Vegas oh for my. the Creation 57-Year Mission Convention on August 3rd to the 6th. And then finally, we're back in Austin, Texas, Labor Day weekend for yet another great GalaxyCon. So for more details, go to ComicCon.org, GalaxyCon.com, and CreationEnt.com. And we'll see you out there on the final frontier or in Raleigh. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie, and I want you to join Ron Howard, Cameron Crowe, Scott Mance, Roger Corman, William Shatner, Paul Schrader, Nicholas Meyer, Henry Winkler, Amy Heckerling, Dee Wallace, Leonard Moulton, and over 100-plus stars, directors, writers, critics, and studio executives on our epic four-week look at the greatest geek year ever, 1982, including deep dives into E.T., Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, My Favorite Year, Diner, Fast Time, at Ridgemont High, The Beastmaster, Blade Runner, and of course, Megaforce. Greatest Geek Year Ever premieres Saturday, July 8th on The CW, or watch a special encore presentation on Tuesday, July 11th, or anytime on The CW app. Remember, the good guys always win, even in the 80s. Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie, and if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at TrexpressPlus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. Well, and then there's yep. a, there's an interesting issue of nature versus nurture with Superman that's been explored in, in different ways. And I've always thought that Superman isn't so much a Kryptonian as he is a Kansan. Mm -hmm. Because the, the character that Superman is, his values, his morals came from Ma and Pa Kent being yep. raised in Kansas. And that made him, you know, a good person. And uh, and they instilled that sense of responsibility that he has, even though Jor-El later in the Christopher Reeve movie, you know, also you know gave him instruction on, on that sort of thing. He was like his core. math tutor, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. But even like when John Schneider played uh, Jonathan on Smallville. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was that nurturing of Clark, of, of the morality of what is right and what is wrong. That by the time he leaves Smallville, whether it's in Superman the movie or whether it's any version of the story, he's ready in a sense. He may not be ready to be Superman per se, but in terms of the goalpost, he knows what it is. He knows what he's got to do, and he's got the moral compass. That's the important thing. He's coming out as Superman for the first time, no matter how he does so a villain kicks his ass, blasts him with something, whatever it may be. The moral compass is already there. And that to me is, I think, one of the things I really enjoy about the character and always have. So, What, you know, obviously a lot of this stuff is very well documented. What are some of the things in the book do you feel either surprised you or you think that people reading this will be like, really, I had no idea? I mean, you, you, like you said, a lot of it is well documented. And I think it's it's the digging in deeper in this book, I think, I hope, uh, that is going to be a little surprising to people, like getting just getting that full history. That being said, the rabbit hole I fell down in writing this thing, and I probably spent the first four months of this book working on, was the Siegel and Schuster versus DC thing. Mm -hmm. And I worked so hard to make sure that it was balanced, because if you really look at the history, mm -hmm. there's so much more to the big, bad DC comics 
and the poor creators who were ripped off. And they were. I mean, you know, even though at the time it was business as usual. Uh, the comparison I always make is it's like the actors from Gilligan's Island. They were paid for the first five reruns of every episode, and that was it. Or the actors from Star Trek, even. Or Roddenberry himself with, with Star Trek until Next Gen and he made all his money. But the, the, the truth is you signed a deal because that's the way the situation was. They signed the rights for $130 for the 13 pages, but they still worked with DC for 10 years. And they made the equivalent of $6 million, if you adjust for inflation, over the course of the actually nine years before they launched a lawsuit and got fired and lost everything, basically. So subscribe today at TrexpressPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the rockets. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctrine. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the inglorious Trexperts. And today we're looking at uh, cinematography. We're with doing something a, a, completely a, visual on our, we're doing our, on our audio podcast. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, we're, we're bringing on uh, Crescenzo. Um, he goes by uh, the one name uh, now. Hey, Prince. Uh, like like Prince, and um, had an amazing career. It's still going on. Uh, and uh, he uh, he joined uh, Star Trek Discovery in the third season, moved over to Star Trek Picard uh, season two, and then uh, shot most of Star Trek Picard season three, um, uh, along with John Joffin, who was um, the great DP on 12 Monkeys uh, that Terry brought on to do his final episodes. Uh, but Crescenzo is such an artist, and has such an amazing history. We thought it would be interesting to have him on the show. Um, obviously, we rarely talk about uh, modern Star Trek on this show, but his contribution uh, is very impressive. And he is a character yeah. uh, with uh, all caps in the best of ways. Right. And, uh, and, and an artist and has some really great stories that we're excited to, to share with you. So uh, even if these shows aren't your bag, man, we think you're really going to dig Crescenzo and, and his story. To be fair, everything we've ever said about uh, the new Star Trek shows has never uh, said that it isn't technically brilliant, right? Because they are. Yeah, and this uh, is how this is part of that. Television is made these days. Yep. You know, this is a, this is a, you know extraordinary group of artists, um, and uh, he is uh, and Star Trek has always had an amazing history uh, when it comes going all the way back. And even before Jerry Finnerman, you got to remember Ernie Haller, who was right. the DP on gone with the wind uh, worked on the uh, second Star Trek pilot where no man has gone before. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, Star Trek is such a part of storied Hollywood history. And then of course, Jerry Finnerman, who uh, did such a remarkable job on, on, on TOS and then later on moonlighting and uh, many other shows, uh, and, and of course, throughout the movie series, you just see all these legends, um, obviously Richard Klein on Star Trek motion picture, Gain Rescher on Star Trek 2, Charles Carell, we don't like the way Star Trek 3 shot, but there's no question that Charles Carell was incredible 
uh, a DP. Um, and then, of course, Donald Peterman, who shot Star Trek IV, yeah. which, is, you know, at the time was just a stunning uh, uh, departure for the franchise. Really great looking. And, uh, you know, obviously Star Trek V, uh, Andrew Laszlo. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's just a phenomenal. And, of course, John Alonzo, the amazing DP behind Chinatown, right. who shot Generations. And that's probably the most out there. People talk about the lens flare and everything, Dan Mandel on the JJ movies. But, you know, John Alonzo really pushed the envelope. You can decide yeah, if he absolutely. broke it or not. But I, 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 there's a lot of things I hate about Generations, but the, the look the of it is not, one, not of them. one of them. I yeah, love right. the cinematography. Yeah. I it just think great. it's stunning. And I, I'm a huge fan of John Alonzo's work. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, I, I, I'm really glad that we brought Crescenzo on because he is so, that's what we say. You know, whether you like something, you don't. The people making it, when they're given 110%, this guy's given 500%. Yeah. To, to his craft, as you'll and, hear, it's amazing. And, and, and uh, I think uh, you you might look at uh, some of these shows in in, in, a, in a new new light. And, ah, uh, as it were. I see what you did there. <laughs> and of course, um, you know the unique challenges of filming during COVID, which yep. can't be uh, underestimated. I mean, I think we've all had to deal with that. Darren, you were in the art department. Yep. Uh, uh, dealing with the COVID mitigation. Obviously, I was shooting the second season of Pandora during COVID, which was brutal. Um, and then, uh, you know, you were in animation, but even you had uh, yeah, a lot of problems to, dealing with COVID in production. Completely right? to figure out different ways to record actors and just, yeah. uh, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare, which isn't to take away from anybody who obviously people suffered horribly yeah, during the pandemic. But we're just as a, as a production example. exercise. It required everybody to to uh, to, yeah. to bring their uh, their a game. Um, but but anyway, we're delighted to bring you another uh, uh, interview with um, a really unique talent. So without any further ado, let's bring in Crescenzo to talk about not only his work on Star Trek, but uh, an incredible career leading up to Star Trek. Well, we're we're delighted to have you, and I, I I think we got you here under false pretenses because, of course, you know this is a Star Trek podcast, but really we want to talk to you about Sergio Leone. I, oh. I mean, your first gig, Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, now you're from you're a good Brooklyn boy, which I approve of uh, because I'm from Brooklyn too. But so were you in Italy when they shot, or did you just shoot the the, the uh, East uh, East New York stuff? No, I was all over the place. I did wind up in Italy, yes, but I started out in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Brooklyn first. Mm. That's when our production started, yes. That was uh, quite an opening punch you gave me with that first name, Sergio Leone. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great intro. I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, tell us about, because, I mean, what was so, I mean, there's so many things that are amazing about that film, but that set they built in Italy where they recreated um, uh, you know, uh, you know, East, basically right there where the FDR is now, but, but, but yes, to, to that whole streets and streets and streets and, 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 in the back, the background, I think it was the Williamsburg bridge, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. It was, it was, <laughs> the Manhattan bridge hadn't been built yet. And, uh, and, and the Brooklyn bridge, uh, but, um, but tell us about, what that was like, because you had just graduated NYU at the time when well, when you no, ended up. No, I, I graduated uh, several, several years prior. You know, I've been working in the business uh, for quite a while prior to Once Upon a Time in America. 
I was basically shooting music videos and commercials mm-hmm. uh, as a first camera assistant. I was an assistant at the time when mm-hmm. I started that. And I knew the producer very well because we just finished a motion picture called uh, Amityville Horror. Sure. And his name was Fred Caruso. He was the producer of the project. And then we befriended each other. And at that time, I was working uh, for Dino De Laurentiis. I was mm-hmm. uh, a staff camera assistant. I was working for Dino De Laurentiis at the time. And then this project came up. And uh, it was a it was a glorious phone call. You know, Fred Caruso asked me if I was interested. You know, of course, I said yes. I knew all about Sergio Leone because it happened to be I, I spent a lot of time viewing and watching and enjoying those old spaghetti Italian westerns. I mean, uh, how can you not enjoy those? And I was very familiar with all of them. You know, and this film was a trilogy. It was Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in the Revolution, and now this film, Once Upon a Time in America. Arnon Milshan presents Once Upon a Time in America. Today they ask us to get rid of Joe. Tomorrow they ask me to get rid of you. Is that okay with you? Because it's not okay with me. They belong to all of us together and to none of us alone. And we solemnly swear to put in 50% of everything we make. Agree? interested in your friends in high places and I don't trust politicians. No, if we listen to you, we'd still be rolling drunks for a living. Who's a famous day? You broke? Here's your money, sir. So, you know, I started out on this film as a focus puller, as a first camera assistant. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how I started out in this film. Yeah. And a couple of weeks into the film, into the project, they added a third camera, and I was asked to man that third camera. But, mm. you know, granted, most of it was static, locked-off shots from the DP, Tonino Delicoli, but it was my responsibility to just make sure that camera was running properly, that there was no problems, battery was up to charge, and composition was there. Uh, took the orders and instructions. I'm there to serve and give them my little jeunes et quoi if need be. And just pay attention and be alert if anything came into the frame, et cetera, and making sure we're rolling in time. You know, all of that. Uh, So I was manning that camera. And then cut to one day. And then the next day, they kept that third camera. So I remained on it. And then two days became three days. And then three days became a week. And before you knew it, that was my transition to step up from first camera assistant a camera operator and it was during that film once upon a time in america and i made my transition during that film so needless to say it was a, it was extraordinary it was yeah. a great learning tool for me uh i was in the nucleus not only as a camera assistant but now as an operator so looking through the lens and looking through the viewfinder and looking through the lenses of choice and seeing the compositions of how we were telling the story was just fantastic to me and it grabbed my heart immediately, and I was thrilled. So, I, of course, I maintained my discipline, my focus, my enthusiasm, and, of course, my, my creative zest 
uh, throughout. And I befriended the uh, DP, Tonino Delicoli, and uh, we loved each other very much. And it was a great relationship. And that was my start as a camera operator, believe it or not, on that epic film. Yeah. And what's amazing is, obviously, look, people today, they don't realize... You couldn't just paint things out. I mean, this was opticals. This was long before. I mean, to create New York of that era. And I mean, I would say what you guys did is even better, than, obviously, than what Coppola did in Godfather 2. I mean, it's extraordinary what you Very accomplished so. in that film. And, um, uh, I, you know, I just and obviously it takes place in multiple time periods uh, for people who don't know the history of the film. Of course, uh, there was this long Leone cut, uh, the direct, the original director's cut, which the lad company didn't want to release, um, because it was too long and they cut, did a cut down version, which is a travesty. Um, and, uh, eventually the, the longer version was released and an even longer version, which is the, the best version was released on, uh, uh, DVD, Blu-ray and, uh, it's not the fully constituted Leone cut, but it's, it's close and it's pretty extraordinary. But what was that like? You know, uh, just the day to day on on a film like that with so many extras and capturing that that era of of you know extreme poverty and um, but yet uh, uh, there's so much going on the hustle and bustle and and recreating an era that people knew in these sepia tinged photos but bringing it to life. Yes. Before I answer that, uh, speaking about Sergio Leone, I just want to share one quick tidbit story that I observed that I was a witness to. When we first screened the film, as you said, it was truncated. It was Alan Ladd. He felt, for some reason, uh, the, the studios felt that the American mentality audience could not last more than two hours for a film. Uh, they just don't have that mental capacity to sit in their seat for that amount of time. So that film was cut to two hours for the American release initially at, at the beginning. And I was a witness to this. When I saw that first screening, we all saw Sergio Leone cry. He literally cried seeing this version. Mm. And I would never forget that. I would never, ever forget that. And to this day, I still think about how an artist feels pouring their heart out for X amount of years, close to a dozen years working on this project. And because of a studio executive or what have you decides just let's just cut this 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 film. Let's just cut it in half. And uh, I witnessed this man cry and it stuck in my heart. It resonated to me on how much an artist, you know, provides and evokes and works hard. And then for that element that's beyond your control to affect you that way for the rest of your life. So, yes, when that four and a half hour version came out many, many years later, you know, of course, the fact that I worked on it, I was so intrigued to see it. Um, and I enjoyed it very much, probably more than most people because I was there. Uh, but it became a classic epic, that version. It became a masterpiece, that version. Just like the the film Reds, you know, uh, yeah. Michael Cimino's film. Mm -hmm. After so many years no later, on, they realize these films become masterpieces. They just don't get it at the beginning. So that yeah. was a very interesting thing to witness. Well, it was a passion project for him. I mean, he very had wanted to do this for many, many years. And I, it's extraordinary because I think it was Roger Ebert, and I may be wrong, who was the only person who had the movie on his worst of the year and best of the year list. <laughs> I he didn't know the, that. He had the, 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 the Alan Ladd, the studio cut, 
on his worst of the year. And when at the end of the year they released longer, he had it on his best of the year. Wow, which is that's a great amazing. tidbit. I did not know that. Yeah, and there it, you go. That says volumes. But to answer, most, your, to answer uh, your question regarding, you know, what was it like? You know, obviously, uh, I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm a Brooklyn boy. You could hear it in my speech. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> no, I would never. <laughs> <laughs> um, but growing up in Brooklyn, I knew about Brooklyn. I knew all the crevices and the, the tastes and the smells and the textures of Brooklyn. So to be part of that and to see it to that level in a period piece brought way back when was obviously very thrilling for me. Uh, I knew about it from, from hearing stories, from seeing photographs of my grandparents growing up in Brooklyn and seeing all the photographs in my house uh, from those days and growing up. Uh, but to see it to that level was extraordinary. And you're right, you know, when you're a filmmaker and you're on a set of this capacity, to see the detail um, right down to the, to the fruit, right down to the colors of, of doorknobs and textures of, of all the clothing and the dirt on the clothing that they would put and the wear and tear of that, all the little textures involved. You look at the books and every book that was in bookshelves were books of that period to the detail. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at all these windows of all the storefronts that were lining up in the streets. I mean, they were all detailed with props and set decoration. And to be involved in that, to see that, to be in the nucleus of that world is very, very transcending. It transcends you to a different world, to a different place, uh, not every normal layman person would have that that uh, that license, that capability, that luxury of being in that world that way. Um, it's such a privilege uh, to be part of that and to be in a nucleus. And obviously, when you're in a camera department, you are truly in di the direct nucleus of these worlds. And especially when you're an operator, because at those times, you know, it wasn't digital, it was all film. So here you are, your head is, your ear is up against the magazine of the camera, the magazine that transports the film. So you hear the transporting of the film that's going around in your ear. That's one magical thing. So you know it's being captured magically, and you're the person that's looking through the viewfinder, composing the story, and you're hearing it roll in your ear, and you're seeing it being recorded is a magnificent, magnificent thing. I can't describe it any more than that, but it was truly remarkable to be part of that film. I've never done a period project. Um, trying to think of a, if I ever done a period project after that, I think you I did. have. You yes, did I Star have. Trek, only yeah. it was the future instead of the past. <laughs> you called me on that. <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, but yeah, the detail was, a, it was amazing. I don't think the, Anyone came close to the amount of detail, maybe perhaps Scorsese's uh, Gangs of New York mm -hmm. uh, came very close to the amount of detail. And of course, when you're talking with Italian filmmakers, um, you know, they do pay very close attention to the history of their heritage, their detail and the way they paint and especially worked with Sergio Leone, you know, especially him, uh, you know, from many other directors, you know, he was above a lot of, lot of directors. He was considered a master, a true master and a legend. And to watch him work and to know that he was a legend before I started the project and to witness that uh, before my eyes, uh, that it was true. He had an aura about him when he walked on the set, when he directed his cast. He had this little je ne sais quoi uh, way of communicating to the actors. You knew by looking at him, he had the story 
in his head. And he had a very unusual way of directing because he would not be too wrapped up in all these cuts. He wanted the shots, the shots to just ride out mm. as long as he possibly can. He was known for that. You look at his Italian spaghetti westerns, you know, you would see a close-up of Clint Eastwood, you know, ready to draw his gun, but there was a standoff. And you would see a close-up on his face or or uh, or Eli Wallach, you know, for maybe three, four, five minutes mm. just on a close-up without a cut. And you would see the flies roaming around the face. Maybe a fly would land on the cheek, you know, and you would hear the sound of the fly and it would just be static on the expression right. of the face. And he was really involved in that. And he did execute that also in this film, Once Upon a Time in America. There was a lot of uh, shots, a lot of photographs, uh, sequences that were like that. So it was extraordinary. Just yeah. leaving the camera on to catch magic when it happens. Yes. And the actors knew that. You yeah. know, and the actors knew that he was not going to call cut immediately. Right. When the lines were over, the actors knew that he was going to keep those cameras rolling. So therefore, you saw it in the actors' expressions as well, that when they delivered a line, now it was their time to continue their acting, but in silence. Right. Facial acting, face acting. You could see their expressions change and wince. And you you take that roller coaster of arc of that character just by staying on their faces. So they exuded their characters when they knew that, that there was that close-up. Right. Mm -hmm. And they would be standing there for like minutes, and Sergio would never call cut. Was was he one to uh, yell out direction during a take? Uh, very good question. I don't believe he did. Um, I don't believe he did. I, he was very meticulous working with the actors prior to cameras right. rolling, blocking, rehearsing, talking to them, knowing what the arcs of the story was, what the arcs of the characters was. It would be very, very involved conversations. I remember right. that very, very clearly. He oh, would take, you know, lots of time while the crew was there waiting uh, before we rolled the camera, he would take his time. When the camera started to roll, I think that was that was Bible. Right. That was church. Let the cameras do its thing. See what happens. Uh, I think Sergio was one of those directors that just wanted to see what he was capturing and what was developing without interrupting them in the middle of a take. Right. Well, a little more of this, a little less of this. Can you look this way? Smile there. Show a little more pain on this line. He was not one of those. Yeah. Well, the, the reason I asked was because the tradition of European and specifically Italian cinema was the fact that the directors were uh, very loud and directing the actors during the take. And so much so that they would have to dub everything in early Italian I knew Fellini was famous for that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Fellini was famous for that. I did hear that. But to, uh, to be honest with you, I don't recall uh, that particular dynamic from Sergio. No, that's good to know. Yeah, I didn't I do not recall that. I'm not saying that was the what actually happened, you know, if that's the <laughs> way it was, but that is that's definitely not my recollection. And being behind camera, I would know. Yeah, you I would have known all that. I would <laughs> know. Anything that you took I mean, I'm sure there were many things that you took from that experience creatively. But when you look back at that experience working with uh, with Leone and um, and making that film in particular, given all of the, the technical challenges that we've barely scratched the surface of with recreating, uh, you know, Brooklyn of that era. Um, what is the what's the what's the most important thing that you took from that 
um, as a shooter that like that has made you better that you think about that you go back to? Is there is there anything like that? Well, one word comes to my mind immediately, and then I will get to the subtext when you say shooter. Yeah. One word that comes to my mind is collaboration. I super respected and recognized that for the first time when I'm on a set, the true process of filmmaking. And in order for anything to work, there is a tremendous collaboration going on with the entire crew before that camera rolls. I've never experienced that before to that level until I stepped onto this film. Every department had to be top-notch up up to the top level, making sure everything was perfect in their particular department before we rolled. And we went right. around to make sure all departments were ready. There was a collaboration. You felt there was a sense of family. And it was interesting that when we were all ready, it became one vision. Mm. We all were collectively together on the same track with one vision. But that vision, that director, that, that conductor was our director. Right. And then he took that vision. And we respected that he was our conductor, uh, but we were all there for him. We were all there to serve. And it was just a fantastic thing to witness in terms of the collaborative process of filmmaking. And not one person can do the job. It takes right. a lot of people in a collaborative way to do that job. Sergio would not have done anything without his crew around him. Uh, and then once everything was all lined up, and he saw it before his lens, and he chose the lens, and he chose the angles that are blocking, and he knew that this is what he wanted to say in terms of his story. Then it becomes his voice, his vision. Uh, and I never witnessed that before to that level. Mm. Uh, in terms of a shooter, like I said, it was just a magical feeling knowing that you're in the nucleus, that you're looking at the frame the frame lines, the ground glass of that camera, and you're, you're seeing the lenses of choice that are chosen to be put before your own personal human eyes, you know, whether it's a 28 millimeter, whether it's 135 millimeter, and you see these choices, and then all of a sudden you're on a telephoto lens or a long lens, and then now you're way in on a face of an actor when you're way back, and it enhances the story. It enhances the thrill for you, and therefore your blood starts to percolate in a very, very different way in a very magical way, transcends you. It truly is a very transcending position to be in when you're behind camera on a set. So to be a shooter, I think, is the ultimate, to be honest with you, uh, when you're on a set, because you are actually capturing uh, everybody's vision together in, in that frame. You're distilling everything. You're compressing everything into that box, into that frame. And to feel all those departments, all those elements of storytelling just jammed into that box it is it's so magical. Right. And of course, it's an extraordinary cast for people who don't know about the movie. I mean, Jimmy Woods is probably his best, I mean, along with Salvador, his best performance in a film. I think uh, so, yes. Robert De Niro is extraordinary in it. Um, Elizabeth McGovern. And I love the story. She's the only one who doesn't age, but she didn't want to wear the old age makeup. So everyone else ages, but that. she still looks. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you a quick story with uh, with Robert De Niro. I mean, I was frightened to see this, but I'm shooting a shot. And in the middle of a shot, he stops. And I'm looking at this through my camera. And he stops in the middle of a take. And he just walks over and he's walking right towards my camera, right towards me. 
my heart was palpitating. And to make the long story short, there was a, a photographer behind me shooting away. And Robert got distracted. Mr. De Niro got distracted. And he literally took the photographer's camera, took it away from him, and threw it down. And he was really upset that that was very distracting to him, to his performance. And uh, it brought my game up to the table. You know, a lot of times, too, when I was a focus puller, you know, there are many, many times where sometimes an actor doesn't want you to make direct eye contact with them. It takes mm -hmm. them out of their headspace a bit. So you really have to watch these nuances of your, your cast. You know, some is a little more flexible than others. You got to pay attention. You got to be very perceptive uh, to watch these personalities on set because everyone is different. You know, and if it's one of those actors that doesn't want to make that eye contact, you know, you got to do your job with your head to the side a little and maybe squint on the side of your eyes or things like that, not to draw attention. Right. So it's those little things. And as a result of that, I gained so much tremendous respect for Robert De Niro uh, because he was so focused, uh, so concentrated on his character. And uh, it taught me a lesson uh, on how much people uh, respect their craft mm -hmm. to that kind of level. Mm -hmm. uh, and they demand respect. And when you're part of a film crew, uh, you have to make sure you collectively have that collective respect for everyone, for all participants of the crew, especially your cast, especially your director. Well, just to just to help our uh, our listeners with the difficulty of being a focus puller, um, especially depending on how much light, what the uh, what the f stop is, you have to determine by just glancing how far they are away from the camera and if they are within that small little range of focus. And that is extremely tough, especially if there's any motion going on in the scene. Uh, if they aren't, you know, standing perfectly still, that is an immensely difficult it's job. It's a miraculous, it's a miraculous uh, occupation. Yeah. When I was a camera assistant, um, my heart used to palpitate every single time because you don't want to be one of those to mm -hmm. whisper to your director photographer or your camera operator for them to tell the director, for them to tell the actor well, it was a little soft. We need to go again. Yeah. And perhaps that was their best performance. Right. So you don't want to be one of those. And it's a miraculous occupation to pull that focus, especially those days, because those days the camera assistant was right next to the operator, shoulder yeah. to shoulder next to the camera. And you would be whispering to each other about, I'm going to go to the hand or be ready. I'm going to tilt up to the face or I'm going to pan over to this actor. You would give each other leads and you would whisper, but you would have that connection, but yeah. you are with the camera. So when you're with the camera, your perspective is straight on with that kind of dimension to what you're pulling focus to. You're not on the side in a profile triangulated way. So right. it's difficult to see distance when you're straight on. It could be five feet. It could be 20 feet. Sometimes yeah. it's hard to tell when you're straight on. Nowadays, the camera assistants, the focus pullers, is never with the operators. Right. They're over somewhere else in the set. They they're have a little monitor. Yeah. Yes, they're triangulating so they can see the, 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 
the subject and the camera in a profile way right. as opposed to a direct line way so they can get more of a judge of that distance. And, of course, they have the monitors in front of them to help them. But in those days, you know, we had tape measures. We sure. would make certain marks on the floor. And it's very difficult, you know, when you have the shallow depth of field, you know, when that lens is almost wide open, right. like 1.4. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. You have maybe an inch, depending on the focal length an inch of depth of field. You know, yeah. I remember there was times of shots where the nose would be in focus, but the eyes would be soft. Yeah. That That's how shallow the depth of field was. And my operator would tell me, you know, pull it a little longer. Pull, you don't have the eyes yet. Pull it, pull it. And it was just an inch depth of field. Oh. So it's a miraculous thing. And I'll tell you a quick story. I never forget this. And it was a big lesson I learned as a camera assistant. And this happened to me on Amityville Horror. When I was a camera assistant, one day I went to Technicolor with my DP. And to make the long story short, the entire days of dailies that we were looking at in a screening room was out of focus. Oof. Oof. And I almost crapped in my pants. My face turned white as a ghost. My, my mouth was completely dry like cement. I couldn't say a word. I didn't know what was going on. I wanted to, to run away to run out of the room. I wanted to cry and quit the business for life and become part of the, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the search warrant where they were trying to find me, you know, the witness protection program. Um, and you know, the DP was really annoyed. He didn't say anything to me, but I could tell in his face, he was very, very annoyed at me. We walked out and we were outside ready to get into our, uh, uh suburban car. And, uh, the, a lab person came out of the door and said, can you please come back to the screening room? And I didn't know what was going on, and neither did uh, the DP. Uh, Franco Di Giacomo was the DP. Mm. And uh, to make the long story short, the lens on the projector, oh, the man. lens uh -huh. on the projector <laughs> was not in focus. Oh, my God. It was God. a little off. It wasn't seated properly. Right. Wow. You can imagine how I felt and what the rest of my day was like. <laughs> Holy crap. Right? So that's the lesson that I've learned. I've learned that before you start flipping out, yeah, there's a few protocols you should go Make through. Make sure you know everything that's going on. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, I would that. never forget that as a focus puller. But getting back to what you're saying about pulling focus on a set, you know, it's a, it's a miraculous job. A lot of people are unaware on uh, the expertise it takes to pull focus. Oh yeah. That's I why mean, just I wanted get a, to just, call attention to it. Just get on your still camera, any still camera that you have with a lens mm -hmm. and just have someone walk towards you and just try to pull that focus of your still camera and keep him in focus the whole way. I mean, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned you had a relationship as any good Italian boy should uh, <laughs> with Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, did you do any other pictures for him besides Amityville too? I was uh, I was prepping the cameras for him for a lot of his pictures. I prepped cameras for him when he was doing Dune uh, with David Lynch. And uh, we did a lot of pet projects on the side. And it was Amityville Horror that uh, I was uh, on the field, as it were, as opposed mm -hmm. to just checking out his equipment, maintaining his, his equipment. You know, he had a lot of uh, the Italians come in from Italy uh, to the United States. And they, there was a whole warehouse full of equipment. They brought in a lot of equipment uh, from Italy. 
And it was my job to make sure everything was up and running, up to speed, working together, you know, all that. So that was my position with Dino, just maintaining equipment and being a camera assistant. Because he was doing great looking pictures then. I mean, that was the era. I said he was doing great looking pictures then. That was the era of, you know, Conan, John Milius' Conan, and obviously Dune. I mean, David Lynch may have disowned it, but for most people, I mean, that's that's a hell of a looking, good looking movie. Yes, Uh, and he cared. He was one of those producers uh, that cared about the look as opposed to the money per se. You know, he mm-hmm. truly cared about the art of filmmaking. He truly cared about how does the film look. It was more important to him than anything else. Um, and it was extraordinary. He was one of those. And yeah. uh, he was a little crotchety, but um, he was a very good man, a very uh, a very strong-willed, caring uh, man in terms of filmmaking. I mean, you saw that clearly. Yeah. And then you were there for the heyday of the music video, you know, back oh, when yes. it was sort of in its infancy and people really experimenting. You worked for Julian Temple. You worked for a lot of these, these legendary um, directors. I assume you worked for Russell Mulcahy because you ended up doing Highlander. Like, um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that wild West era was like? Because I mean, there's probably few times where the industry has been more experimenting and you were rewarded for being experimental as opposed to um, penalized for it. Absolutely. Well said. That's exactly what happened back then. And that's exactly why we all grew, because there was no rules, no parameters. We were gypsies. We were free to do whatever we wanted. We were explorers. We were inventors. We, uh, you know, got new tech, uh, new technologies to experiment, to explore with new film stocks. You know, let's throw our negative film stock into a positive bath. Let's see what happens. Um, you know, let's think out of the box. Let's mount our cameras now on guitar frets. Let's put them inside the holes of guitars with yeah. the point of views of coming out to see the fingers, you know, strumming. Let's put our cameras in drum heads. Let's put our cameras on the heads as they're, you know, doing the rock and roll going down the street. Let's get cable cams going across venues. Yeah. Um, but it was very exploratory uh, because of, we were experimenting with Super 8 we were experimenting with 16 millimeter. We were experimenting with 35 millimeter. We were putting all these mediums together. We were dealing with hand crank cameras to get that kind of staccato frenetic feel. And we were explorers. You know, we would hear the music. You know, the directors would write a treatment uh, for the record company. And they would get hired, you know, based on their treatment. And from there, you know, it was full guns blazing. And yes, that was a very, very strong part of my career. I owe a lot. Uh, if not mostly all of it, to that era because it gave me that free will. It gave me that spirit of not being afraid and to experiment and to explore. You know, these days when you're doing commercials and you got account executives down your back or a lot of motion pictures where you got executive producers down your back and you, you can't explore the way you want because it always comes down to time and money. So you have to be very regimented. But in those days, we were free-spirited. And um, and also our hours were there was no such things as a, a normal workday. Yeah. My longest my longest hours was I was doing a Michael Jackson video uh, directed by Jeff Stein. And we went literally, literally 68 straight hours. Wow. Oh, that eight straight hours. I mean, when the department would finish, whether it was construction or lighting, whatever, they would take a cat nap on set while we would roll camera, what have you. But we would be continuing. There was no cuts. You know, we would not go home. We would not rap. It was straight through 68 straight hours. And it was crazy because some 
I won't get into detail, but, it, you know, you would be so tired that some some of our crew members will lose their bowel movements on the set and crap in their pants because they're so tired. I never forget I was on a dolly. <laughs> I was on a dolly doing one shot, and I literally fell off the dolly because I nodded out. Oh, man. oh my God. Those were crazy, crazy days. It was crazy. But, yes, I worked with geniuses, you know, like Russell McKay. Sure. I worked with Jeff Stein. I worked with Marcus Nispel. Mm -hmm. I worked with a lot of really good, good people back in the day. And I was lucky for that. You know, my DP at the time, my mentor at the time uh, was Tony Mitchell. And mm -hmm. him and uh, another person by the name of Daniel Pearl, a great yeah. colleague of mine, those two uh, DPs were like the king of music videos. And I was lucky to be uh, under the wing of one of those. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot. And I would never forget, you know, I, I was under his wing uh, for a long time as a camera assistant. And then one day I felt in my heart, it was time for me to start shooting. And it was time for me to, to leave the nest. Right. And it was very difficult for me to tell my DP that, that I, I will not be available for you on this next gig because I need to start making my transition. And I would never forget that feeling. Like I just lost my 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 lover i just lost my spouse and he felt the same way yeah. he, we felt like we just lost our limbs it was a an unbelievable relationship the whole industry knew about our relationship we were both martial artists so we we relied on each other because of our martial arts uh in terms of our discipline our focus right. and our drive and that's what kept us kept us together connected uh because of our martial arts and our hearts and it was a terrific uh, relationship I had. But getting back to that era, to that genre, you know, we did we did them all back then. And I was traveling. I was traveling as a camera assistant all around the world, back and forth to New York, to London, maybe two, three times a week by way of the Concord. Right. I would fly in via Concord shoot a job, fly back on a Concorde next that night or next, that next day, I would be on another gig. Wow. And I was like one of the Kings back then. And uh, it was a great <laughs> glorious time. Yeah. I know. I saw Marcus the spells house. I, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, he has a funicular. <laughs> oh my God. Um, it's beyond but, the same. Uh, I, so I got to ask you about Highlander because obviously that's another movie that got brutalized by the studio. Uh, before it was released, but it, 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 it probably, you know, along with like Flashdance and a couple of, uh, of the Adrian Line movies, it was something that really showed how video, music videos had changed the industry. I mean, obviously it's not just because it's Russell, but it's such a great looking movie and those transitions between the past and the present. And it's, it's, I, it's, it's just really great. What, what can you tell us about working on Highlander and working with Russell and that, that whole movie, which has really become a, a, a cult classic? Yes, it has become a cult classic. But you said the key name with Highlander, and that's Russell McKay. Um, you know, he was the king, literally the king of music videos back then. Yeah. And for him to do this motion picture, of course, you would feel his thumbprint uh, tremendously so on this motion picture. He had such a visual style, a visual flair 
a visual way of storytelling in a very exciting way, in a very uh, new generational way, you know, that people were aware now of photography and the eye candy of what that photography is about and how it catapults a story. So he was one of those. And I think because of him, that was one of the main reasons why that film uh, looked the way it did. And of course, you know, with my mentor that I just finished talking about, Tony Mitchell, you know, he was the DP of that. I was his camera assistant. Uh, I think with all of us together, and we had such a tremendous language uh, with each other prior to that with dozens and dozens, if not maybe close to 100 music videos that we have done all together before we stepped onto that film. Mm. So it was uh, it was really electrifying, visually speaking. Uh, of course, that was not going to go by the wayside. Uh, that was probably our strongest senses that we all had collectively was the visual storytelling element of it all. And I did see it clearly, you know, working with them in New York and the way we're telling the story and the way Christopher Lambert was a reacting to Russell and those kind of creative discussions on how far we could take a shot and what we should do to make it more exciting. And that would really excite Christopher Lambert as well. And you could see him getting very, very excited about these visual ideas you know, not just his story or character, but he was really in tune about how we're telling the story visually. And because of his enthusiasm, it made Russell McCabe that much more enthusiastic to bring more visuals to the table, not in an aggressive, indulgent way, but in, a, in an artistic, creative, visual way. Right. And I think that was one of the first films back then that stood out, you mm -hmm. know, that kind of way visually storytelling wise. And uh, I was glad I was part of that. There's a there's a a moment in that movie, and you know, Mark alluded to kind of how all the transitions worked, and they're all pretty amazing. And just um, you know, uh, in general, how you made the Scottish Highlands look, you know, versus how you made New York City look, um, and the different eras all had their own yeah. um, visual language. But it's funny, you know, what didn't occur to me until you started talking about all of the innovations that uh, music videos brought to shooting and kind of how you think about shooting. You're putting cameras on cables and all that stuff and all this conversation about focus pullers. Suddenly my brain goes to the last fight with uh, Russell Mulcahy and with Clancy Brown. And it's in that like warehouse area and the camera is sweeping Yes. Around. And it's just, it's bravura. It's crazy. Like, like, what was that like? Had they, had you done anything like that before? Like in a, in a, in a sort of in a film environment, or was that all just Russell saying, let's take all the stuff we learned about making music videos and just go for it here. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's very astute of you to recognize that. And I would say yes to that. It was Russell and us with our music video background. I have to say that it sounds kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is to say, kind of awkward to say that, that our music video was a tremendous foundation to our discipline in terms of filmmaking, but it was because of what you just said. You know, you take a fight sequence, and if we didn't have that background in our music video way, that exploratory zest, that zeal of how to really work with that camera, if we didn't have that education in a music video way, I don't think that shot would never have come up in that film, along with many other shots. Right. So yes, it had a lot to do with our music video mentality, if I, if, if, if you will. And, uh, and again, Russell was the king of that. He was a very visual director. 
And uh, yeah, I remember having that conversation or listening to that conversation when that shot came up and uh, it was ping pong back and forth. You know, at one point, if I remember correctly, you know, they were ready to just really streamline it. And uh, I think it was Russell who did not want to streamline it. He was the one who said, let's just go for it, see what happens. And he was the protagonist of that. Uh, He wanted to just really be out of the box. And when you work with a director that's not afraid to be out of the box as a DP, as a filmmaker, as any crew member is, you know, around that that energy, uh, it gives you freedom. And it's a terrific license to really open up your creative heart, to dig in those crevices that you normally would never have that uh, that that situation to to grab onto because of the parameters. Uh, it's it's very freeing. And what it does to you, it opens up your mind. Uh, you know, a lot of times you go into a project and you're thinking this way because of parameters or whatever it may be. But when someone gives you that license, let's think out of the box and that, that rah-rah approach, all of a sudden it does this to your mind. It opens it up. The doors go away. Drawers in your mind start to open. Yeah. And then everything that you look at in your in your life, and I'm a strong believer you know, as a photographer, as a cinematographer, I look at thousands and thousands of photography books. And I thumb through them. I look at them. I stare at them. I put post-its on them. I study them. about thousands of them. And my theory of that is this. When I look at a lot of beautiful images, I want to put that into my library, my subconscious mind. I want to feed myself subconsciously. Just feed me all the stimuli because one day when I'm asked to execute something and to be with a director who gives you that license, you know, let's think out of the box. And then all of a sudden now you're thinking in a very carefree way. You'd be surprised how those drawers open up in your mind that you recall certain images that you've seen in photography books that are stuck in the back of your mind that you always wanted to experiment and and execute, you know, not just photography books, but also films, you know, anything that we do as artists, you know, sculptures, paintings, films, literature, anything, just feed your brain. And I feel that's very, very important as an artist is to really feed your subconscious daily, every day. You're not be aware. You may not be aware of what's going in your brain, in your skull. But trust me, it's it's grabbing onto something in the crevices of your creative mind and it's just lingering in there. And it's such a wonderful feeling that with the creative spontaneity comes out on the set and you're asked to execute something or to think about something, it's a glorious feeling that these things come out of your head out of nowhere. Yeah, well, literally nowhere. expanding your palate. So exactly. That That's exactly what you're doing. As many colors as possible. Yeah. As, as much as you can, yes. And I'm a strong believer in that. Well, you talked about Christopher Lambert um, wanting to see uh, Russell push the envelope. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the other star who is traditionally uh, a guy who uh, does a lot of paycheck gigs, but he also doesn't suffer fools gladly. And, of course, that was Sean Connery. Do you remember anything about working with Sean on Highlander? Well, very little, to be honest with you. Um, Sean, he was a very, a very firm man. Um, I'm trying to be polite. Uh, He was very firm, very disciplined. Uh, He just, he just wanted to get, get, get to it immediately. He didn't want any frou-frou around it. Yeah. He didn't want any, anything to do with any frou-frou 
conversations. Just tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. I know what the story is about. Let's talk about the story for a moment. The arc of my character. Where is it going? Where did it come from? That's right. all he needs to know. Boom. And he will bullseye it. Right. And that was his approach. He just wants to bullseye his approach. And that's the way he loves to work. Uh, I remember that. Uh, I was young. I was impressionable at the time. Uh, I don't remember too vividly, to be honest with you. I remember more vividly with Christopher Lambert than than Sean. Uh, But he was really very regimented, uh, very strict that way. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, walking around him, you would be on pins and needles, I would remember. Not only for me, but I could see with other members uh, walking on eggshells sometimes. He was one of those. Uh, But, you know... When you when you peeled away all those layers and you got to the to the brass tacks of it all, um, he brought it. He brought it yeah. to the table. He was Big a pro, a seasoned pro. pro. Yeah, quintessential pro. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you because we probably should talk about Star Trek on this Star Trek podcast. <laughs> um, that uh, you you were working on Gotham, which also had a you know really great noir look for TV. You got to really yeah. push that. Um, so Tunde had did, did an episode and then recruits you for Star Trek Discovery in their third season. Friends, please come in, come in. Uh, sit, please. I gave the rest of the crew the evening off to recuperate, but I asked all of you here because we work most closely and have not had a moment. In fact, we have lost quite a few. Almost every culture has a ritual that gathers its moments when it can, holds them dear. A time to take the measure of loved ones and what we have all accomplished together. Uh. We made a choice a millennium ago, to follow Commander Burnham. I will never forget what I heard as I stood before each of you as you cast your vote. It was not unlike a small prayer. I ask that we repeat that now. Must we really? Yes, we must. Lieutenant Detmer, do you remember what you said? I said I. I said I. 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 I, sir. I. 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 I never said I. But I'm here. I. I. Tell us a little bit about coming to do that show. And also, I'm curious, you know, because obviously, as opposed to doing a pilot, you're inheriting a house style. And how that may be limiting or potentially yeah. freeing, and you know what your feelings are as an artist, you know how much you can push, push, push that envelope. Well, I, I commend you very much. You obviously done your homework. Uh, you mentioned Tunde, uh, aka Ola Tunde. Um, you knew all about him, so that was really wonderful to hear that you knew about that story uh, that he and I worked together on Gotham. Uh, so yes, I was in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I was working on a show called Gotham. It was a terrific show to work on as a DP. Uh, it was a DC comic uh, uh, project, you know, based on Batman when he was a young boy. Uh, so we created our own worlds. Talk about being out of the box. Uh, that was uh, that was our, our, our call. 
was to be out of the box. We were creating our own worlds uh, during that project because it was it was comic book, right. you know. So what if I wanted to light a night exterior hot pink? If I felt the need to light a night exterior hot pink, I'm going to light it hot pink. There's no wrong or right when you're dealing with a comic strip world. So that was really fun and free, uh, freeing to execute it that way. You know, we're not doing law and order where we're dealing with docu-style reality on a street. You know, we were dealing with a show that we were creating our own world. So, yes. So I was working with a, a director at that time, uh, Olatunde, and then uh, he went off to Toronto to become a producer-director on Star Trek Discovery. Right. Star Trek Discovery 1. He became a producer-director. And then when he uh, got that position, he called me, and I loved him for this. So obviously I did something right with him. <laughs> we kept that relationship up. But he called me, and uh, I was so honored. But I was still shooting Gotham. You know, I'm not one of those DPs that will walk off a show, yeah. you know, for something else. I'm not one of those. I believe in loyalty, whether I like it or not. You know, sometimes you think the job is going to be great. You say, yes, you do the job. And then you realize it's the most hellacious job you've ever done. Yeah. But as a professional, you know, I'm there to the very, very bitter end. Yeah. And I'll do my utmost best on the project, no matter what. That's my my signature. Uh, that's my pride. And producers know that. So anyway, so I, I was not available for him when he called me the first time. I was not available for him when he called me season two. I was still on Gotham. Right. But Gotham finally finished, and he called me for season three. Thank God. I mean, I would imagine at that time he would have a whole arsenal of DPs, but he actually called me, and I smiled, and I raised my hand. I said, Tunde, uh, I'm available. I would love the opportunity to be by your side again. So before I knew it, I was up in Toronto on a – Tremendously different project, you know, from Gotham, you know, now on to Star Trek. And when I first got the tour of Star Trek and the crew uh, and the sets, my heart started to really skip a notch because I realized immediately I was dealing with certifiable geniuses. Every single person on Star Trek up there were certifiable geniuses. They knew about the show inside out and backwards. They knew about timelines. They knew about everything. But not only that, they were fantastic artisans of their individual crafts of themselves bringing to the table. So that was extraordinary. But I was very, very lucky because my first uh, episode that I was, was with, with John. <laughs> right. was with the yeah. godfather of Star Trek, Mr. Jonathan Frakes. And he took me into what I call his creative bosom. He took me into his bosom. He made me feel comfortable. Um I learned a lot. Um, he wanted to get whatever was inside of me. He made that clear to me, which made me feel great. So to answer your question, what what is it like when you step onto a project that's all, already rolling? Mm -hmm. You know, he made it clear to me, and I love him for this, and we became so close as a result of this, as brothers, that Crescenzo, Tunde, and Alex Kurtzman, the grand pool by himself of all the Star Trek legacy, we hired you for a reason. They hired you for a reason. You know, yes, there are parameters and canon, you know, things that we have to maintain with, with the show. But every person, every DP has a different thumbprint. We want to see and feel yours. Bring it to the table. I will tell you if it's too much out of the box or if it's not right. Let me worry about that, he said. 
But I want your heart. I want to see how you interpret certain things. You know, like for instance, it was crazy. We almost got in trouble for it, but he supported me and he loved it. And we smiled at each other. A simple thing like red alert. I had to do red alert in my episode. Right. And I'm looking at all the episodes prior with what red alert was. But I wanted to be that much more. Again, bringing in the music video world, my mind was going in that kind of flavor. I didn't want to be too indulgent where I was starting to raise eyebrows. Like, what the hell are you doing, Crescenzo? Uh, but I wanted to bring a little more excite, excitement to that color red. And I wanted it to be a little more explosive on either the back edge of a face or a key side of the face. I didn't want to be so gentle and subtle or just the lights in the background on the sconces going red alert. You know, I wanted to feel that color of emotion on the set exploding, not only on the set, but also on the characters, on the actors. So I had to, I had to find my level of how much red uh, to make my red alert with Jonathan. So he saw that. We questioned it at the beginning, uh, but he smiled. He gave me that Jonathan Frakes smile, and he said, you know what? I love it. That's what he said. He says, I love it. Let's just go for it. If we get slapped, we get slapped. Right. Well, let's just do it. So it was that moment on that I felt comfortable for me to think the way I need to feel in my heart, not be so worried about other DPs or other episodes prior to me, what the show was about. Of course, I got to discipline myself. Uh, of course. I didn't want to raise eyebrows, especially to Mr. Alex Kurtzman and the canon of Star Trek. Uh, but I appreciated the fact that he said, we want your heart. You're here for a right. reason. We want your heart. And I've learned so much from all my prior DPs. And the one who was on that, that took me into his bosom, was uh, 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 Glenn Keenan. He was the DP of Star Trek uh, Discovery. And he and I had big conversations as well. He nurtured me. I learned a lot from him. And then I took it upon myself to do, okay, I got that guidance. I understand the flex of that that parameter, how far I can go or not go, or what to be careful of. But now it's I have to use my sensibilities to now when I get on the set to feel it my way, you know, my intelligence, uh, in my context, in the context of how we're telling the story of this particular episode. Um, so that was a great, a great uh, adventure. It was a great experience. I had a fantastic time. And I'll tell you a quick story. At the end of Discovery, at the end of my season, I was asked to remain up there to do the next season. Mm. And I was complimented. And I was so excited because I loved I loved the crew. Um, best crew I've ever worked with. I, I just loved the crew. Fantastic. And I became really close uh, friends to everyone. So I was excited to remain up there. And during the end of my season of Discovery, they were starting to prep um, Strange New Worlds. Right. And their office was right next to mine. So often I would go into the office of Strange New Worlds. I would see what's going on, see their renderings. I was asked to go in there, talk about what they have to offer, what I have to offer, just have a conversation with them, the production designer, talk about sets, talk about the worlds. And I was hoping to get on that show as well. It was fantastic. The drawings and the concepts I saw of that show was fantastic. So I wanted to remain up there. And then all of a sudden, uh, one of the executive producers, uh, Frank Saracusa from Toronto, Canada, he came up to me, he says, Crescenzo, 
you know, both DPs of Star Trek Picard in Los Angeles, Picard one, season one, both TB, both DPs uh, are not coming back for season two. Mm. I didn't know why. Naturally, I wanted to know why, but I wasn't <laughs> yeah, going right. to ask that question. I wasn't yeah. going to ask that question first uh, because there's always a lot of politics. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. So you don't yeah. know if it's going to go left or right. You don't know who's whatever. So I didn't want to get involved in any sticky situations. But I heard that both EPs were let go. Um, and therefore, season two, they asked me to come to Los Angeles to do season two. If that's like, okay. I'm getting out of Toronto. Toronto winners, goodbye. Hello, Los Angeles. Exactly. And uh, But you know what? I was willing to bear through the winters because I loved it up there with the crew. But yes, I haven't been home in nine years wow. prior to that. Home right. in my bed in Los Angeles. You know, I was all over the world, all over the country. You know, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I was in Atlanta, Georgia. I was, I was all over the place. So for me to hear that, okay, get back to my own bed in Los Angeles, get back to my family, and not only to, to stay with Star Trek, but it's Star Trek uh, season two and three. Right, back, back to back. Back to back. And and season three is the uh, the 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 climax, the ending to the character Jean Luc Picard, as it were back then. That's right. what was told to me. Uh, who knows how things develop later on, but uh, it was the end of the the Jean Luc Picard. So uh, I said, "Wow, this is this is going to be interesting." So I said yes to that. And then one week later, believe it or not, oh, I, was, <laughs> I was there. I was in Santa Clarita. Yeah. I was invited to the writers' room mm -hmm. just to be a voyeur, sit in the back. But listen to what's going on. They were breaking down the arcs of season two. Uh, so I listened to all of that. I see what was going on. And then before I knew it, I was I was on the sets of uh, Star Trek Picard. And it was kind of interesting because, in my humble opinion, I was really looking forward to that. Because with Star Trek Discovery, for a lack of a better way of saying it, uh, it had a lot of visual testosterone. I say that all the time, and some people misinterpret when I say it that way. But what I mean by that is it was very visually strong, a lot of eye candy. It was fantastic visually, great for a cinematographer. But what I noticed when I was up there shooting Discovery and we were all watching Star Trek Picard season one, I noticed that it was a little more introverted. Mm. A little more character driven, a little more poetic. It wasn't as as explosive as the way Discovery was. This was a little more subdued, a little more poetic. Like I said, well, also a little more grounded because a lot of it took place yes. on Earth and in the vineyard and uh, in sets that weren't spaceships. So it was more relatable to yes. And and that's what intrigued me, and that's what enticed me, and that's why I got excited because shooting Gotham uh, in in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, then going up to Discovery, and these were very strong visual cinematic shows. Uh, but it felt good. I wanted to be part of that kind of storytelling with actors and see how actors, you know, approach mm. their craft and be more involved in the poetic aspect of storytelling, um, and not necessarily be so visceral, so kinetic with the camera. Right. Uh, maybe just have the camera sit there and let the story just take place in front of it. I've never experienced that before. You know, even when I, before I did uh, Gotham, you know, I was on CSI. Mm -hmm. And uh, back then, you know, the, the mothership, CSI Vegas. Mm -hmm. And that was a very, very high, you know, highly visual show as well. You know, that pioneered a lot of visual looks uh, in terms of the cinematic approach to uh, 
television storytelling. So I came, you know, from one to the next to the next. A very strong visual shows that way. And don't get me wrong, Picard was very visual. It, it truly very, uh, very much was. And I recognized it. I thought it was fantastic season one. So I was a little daunted, you know, to get into season two uh, because I thought season one was so fantastic. Those DPs did a fantastic job. And to step in their shoes and to see where they were going, you know, it's always nerve wracking at the beginning. You know, I've spent a lot of sleepless nights, um, you know, just being nervous about my approach. Right. Uh, so I step onto the set. It's, it's always a very daunting task because I, I'll make an analogy. You know, when I step onto the set, uh, because of my martial arts, you know, I've studied martial arts for 35 years. I've studied in Japan for 10 years. Um, and it was a strong part of my life. But, you know, before I stepped onto the deck, you know, in my dojo, uh, you know, you bow, you step onto the deck and that becomes your church. Right. Uh, that's that becomes part of your, your church, uh, your discipline. So I, I take that approach when I step onto the set, you know, before I step onto the set, I think of it as my my deck. In my dojo, I think of it as the ring, uh, as a boxer would before you step into the ring. You know, you have to really get your mind and your heart set and focused in, in, in many, many disciplined ways, not just creatively, but spiritually, physically. There's a lot of stamina involved, a tremendous amount of stamina involved when you walk onto the set and you're shooting, you know, for 14, 16 hours a day every single day for nine months with millions and millions of dollars on your back. And you cannot make a mistake because one mistake in my occupation could cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and you have to be prepped very much meticulously prepped because when you walk on a set, you know, it is 200 people looking yeah. at you wondering, you know, what course are we taking? What direction are we going in? You go on location, you look over your shoulder. There's like 15 tractor trailers full of equipment of a tremendous amount of nuts and bolts of equipment. And, you know, they think it's easy, you know, not they, the layman, you know, you're outside exterior day, uh, you're lit because of the sun, but right. that's the hardest thing for DP yeah. because that sun is your light. I can't place that, that light, mm -hmm. that sun where I want it to be. I have to rely on the arc of that sun during the hours and the shot listing of my particular day and what the particular weather is like in that particular day. Do I want to face this way first yeah. into the sun or do I want to face this way first away from the sun and have it backlit, you know? So it's a very, very intricate process what we do as cinematographers. And a lot of people are very, very unaware of the amount of detail uh, that we all have to go through before we walk onto that set to tell a story, you know, Oops. the layman, they, they see the, they see the red carpets, they see all the glamor yeah. and glitter and champagne yeah. and the finished products. Uh, but they don't see the hell it takes <laughs> behind the camera to make a product for you to just not even be aware of it, to take your mind off of your particular day, your doldrums, you know, be entertained, have your mind transport somewhere else into the future for an hour and forget about all your problems. This is what we do. Yeah. We sell a product. You know well, what I think is so funny, Crescenzo, is that you finally get away from these six-handers on the bridge in, in Toronto, right? Shooting these, these just, you know, cra crazy things where you got, you know, six, eight people with speaking parts, you know, on the bridge has been shot now you know, God knows how many times. And you think, oh, finally, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. And then you're doing daytime exterior. The last thing you expect for a Star Trek, because of COVID, 
half the season is out in parking lots and Los Angeles and, you know, all these daytime exteriors you God would never you. expect to see. I, I was like, my God. I mean, you're just God bless you for saying that. I appreciate you saying that because it, it's a very sensitive thing to all of us uh, of season two versus season three. Yeah. Season two was very, very tough. Um, there was a lot of dysfunctional things going on, not within ourselves as a family, as a collective filmmaking group, but the world itself. When we started season two, pandemic just started as well. So our whole methodology of, of how we work changed in a matter of a day, just like that. And we had to come up to speed to understand what it's like to work with COVID, with a pandemic. We were working Every day, hellaciously, through COVID. A lot of people don't know that or remember that, I should say, when they look at season two. Season two is a product of us working during COVID. And to be honest with you, when you're a director photographer and you're trying to light and we are forced to wear masks over our faces and not only masks, but in front of those masks is these face shields. Right. That we have to put in front of the mess. So when you're lighting someone, you're trying to light an actress, Jerry Ryan, Michelle Hurd, these two beautiful women, and you're trying to light them and your standings have these masks and face shields on. You put a light up or the sun or reflection. Everything is reflected off the face mask yeah. and the face shields. And you, you, you're pulling your hair out. You can't ask yeah. them to take them off. You got to respect the protocol rules. So they're on. And then the, the first team comes out, you know, your leading actors come out. They do the first rehearsal with their face masks on. And then all of a sudden, are we ready? Yes, we are. Okay, we're ready to roll camera. They take the face masks off and all the face shields. And you see the imprints of the face masks, you know, on their faces or what have you. And then you roll camera. Then as you're rolling camera, your socks and your feet will start to roll down because you're realizing, oh, my God, there's no light in the eyes. Oh, my God, I got to... There's so much shadows going on. I got to fill this. I got to do this. I got to do that. So it was a constant task of do I say anything to the director? Right. Uh, or do I not say anything? Uh, constantly biting your tongue because, you know, if you say something and you and you ask, well, I need 10 more minutes. I got to fix yeah. something. Oh, my God. That's not a good thing. You may and not make the day. Right. That's that's very important. You know, you got to make the day number one. That's my first responsibility yeah. to me. But putting that aside for a second, it's also I'm very in tune with the cast. I have to be very in tune. Right. Every every cast member is different. The personalities are different. And you got to watch them really meticulously on the kinds of personalities they are. So my point of saying that is, is. Sometimes you can feel comfortable to ask for two minutes to correct something, and that particular actor is not going to chew you out. Right. Or sometimes you realize, you know what? I got to respect their time now. Right. I just took a half hour to light. Now it's their time to act. They got the mojo going on that first take. Yeah. You saw it immediately. They got a mojo going on. The chemistry is starting to come out of their pores with yeah. their fellow actors. They're getting into a groove. The director is feeling it as well. You know, the director also has their mojo. They you may do be not at want that, to break it up. They may be at that peak of readiness that they may not be able to regain. Exactly. And you have to be aware of that. So there's that fine, exactly. There's that fine line. When you're a DP, how you execute your job, your approach, what to give up, what not to give up, 
what buttons you want to catapult, what buttons you want to just come down. You can't fight for all of your battles. But for me, what separates the men from the boys is you have to know what battles to fight for. Because Mm -hmm. when I take extra time on this, my director and cast and producers know that I will make it up on this next sequence. Right. All right. I will take half the amount of time on that one to make up for this. And here's that balance. And I take great pride. You speak to any one of my producers. I take great pride that I never go over my days. I make my days. To me, that's my most important responsibility. Once I get hired is to make sure I make my days, to keep the mojo flowing, to make sure we don't carry it over to the next day, to make sure we don't go into overtime where the budget starts to whittle away. You know, you don't want to, God forbid, you don't want to make up the shots the following day, you know, because location permits, you know, sometimes the actors are not available, the schedule, it becomes a domino effect. So you got to be really careful. Of course, you want it to make it look as beautiful as you possibly can and tell the story, but you have to know your moments. And that's why the one hour television genre, uh, dramatic genre is the hardest of them all. Hardest of them all. Any DP would tell you that. And a lot of giant feature guys would come into the television world and a lot of them would fall apart. Because we're working so fast mm-hmm. and it's a perpetual compromising. They're not used to that. You know, like you said, we're doing six, seven, eight pages a day. Sometimes on a big motion picture, you're doing a half a page, two pages sometimes. You know, of course, you know, there are many projects that are doing much more than that. I'm generalizing. I don't want to show disrespect to that. But you understand my illustration here that when you're on a, on a television genre, um, you know, it's not just one episode. It's just not one film that you're participating in two to three months. It's dozens of episodes for nine months of work every single day for 14, 16 hours a day. That takes discipline. Right. And sometimes that's the reason why TV looks the way it does. But you have to admit, you know, we're in the what I call the platinum age of television right now. It's not the golden age. To me, it's the platinum age. The creative bar and content is so sky high. There's so much fantastic television out there that you got to tip your hat. And you got to say to yourself after what I just said, wow. Even I say this as a professional, and I know how hard it is to do it. Even I say, wow. How did they do that in this amount of time and make it look so fucking great? And you bow and you have such tremendous respect. That's why this television genre, the the, the acclaim of it is so sky high right now. And I love the fact that we're binge watching, doing, you know, smaller episodes, you know, not that formulaic 22 seasons on on networks. You know, you're doing 8, 10. You can binge three, four, five shows at once, like reading a novel. And it's glorious to see that 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 arc of storytelling that kind of way in a very explosive way. It's fantastic. But in production, you still have that that surge of energy throughout the uh, the season. Um, it's just a little shorter. You know, it's just yes. a, a little shorter amount of time. But still, you you have you have the ability to again focus your creative energy to its highest point and maintain it. And that's a tough thing to do. It's a very tough thing to do. And not everyone can do that. And it takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of hours of work for you to hone in on your craft to get to that level. And again, I keep saying this, it takes a lot of stamina. You know, you got to take care of your health. 
You got to take care of your body. You know, you got to get on that treadmill a month before the project starts, you know, to get your heart palpitating, to get yourself in a groove because, you know, you're wearing one of those watches, you know, that has all the steps. And you realize at the end of the day, you just did 20,000 steps <laughs> you know, in a normal day. Yeah, and you're yeah. on the soundstage. And yeah, you're looking yeah. at your watch, you did 20,000 steps. You know, <laughs> but to do that every single day. But not only that, with the amount of pressure, the pressure and stress is enormous because we are in the, the art of perfection. You want to make sure whatever you do in terms of your craft, you do not make any mistakes. You're perfect that first time. And if they call a second take, you got to be perfect that second time. And if you're doing 10 takes, you got to be perfect 10 takes because you don't know which take they're going to use or what take the actor says it was their best take. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Take, Sorry. A lot I, I a lot of people don't realize that, you know, in features, the actors look to the director. But in television, you know, the, the directors are there for an episode, then they're gone. You know, there are a couple of house directors like Tunde and, and obviously John and a couple of the other directors, Doug, yes. who come back. But the first person that the cast looks to in TV is usually the DP. Was that That's good correct. for camera? How was I? It's a very different role for you because you also have to be a bit of a psychiatrist in addition to uh, a DP. Absolutely. Um, very astute for you to say that because you do have to be a psychiatrist. Uh, you have to, not only with cast and your observation, but you know, also with your crew, you know, when you're a department head, uh, you have to make sure you get the best out of your crew from their hearts in a very respectful, humble, professional loving way everyone is different so you gotta you gotta react to everyone and work with everyone in a very different way from one person to the next and you have to be smart uh like you said being a psychiatrist you have to be smart on how to play with certain people because you don't want to get the worst out of them of how you say something or how you approach something or your personality, you know, you want to make sure you get the best out of them. And that's your job as a department head, you know, and I, and when I feel that way to the person that I'm serving, if I love them and if I respect them, they will get everything out of me a thousand percent. And that's what you want. And we're all like that when we start a project. And it's a wonderful thing when you're on a film set, because we work out all those bumps and grinds at the beginning. And when you have a long form project, you know, it starts getting a little more smoother. The machine starts getting a little smoother. It gets a little more oiled from the first episode to the second episode to the third episode. Mm -hmm. Now we're in a groove with each other. Now the communication process, sometimes you do this to a director, they know exactly what you want or what they need from you. And it's that kind of language. You know, sometimes it's an expression of your face when you're reacting to a take on a monitor and your gaffer is looking at you. And even though you didn't say nothing, you know, he knows that, I wasn't that happy. And you will see him or her run out on the set in between takes to correct something. And right. that's what you want to see. That's a love. And I thrive on that when I work with people that have that zeal and that respect and love for the craft of what we do. Yeah. And you're right. You know, when you're doing it from one episode to the next, it's a grind. It takes discipline. Uh, and you're in it for the long haul. And I got to tell you, your brain is on fumes. Mm -hmm. Coming towards the last third of the season, you're on fumes and it's really hard to think. 
It's like running against the wind. You know, it's like sometimes you think you have dementia or Alzheimer's, you know, where you're trying to say something, but it's just not coming out. You know, you got that blank stare. Your brain is locking. It's locked because it's so tired, you know, and you don't want to get to a place where it atrophies, but you want to unlock that. And, and it's a wonderful place that when you unlock it because of love or respect that you feel from a crew member running out, it gives you a new breath. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read a script and it's a great script uh, that you're just about to start on and it's a different project, you know, that you would normally never uh, approach it this way. But now you got a script that's out of the box. It gives you enough uh, an, another lift. So that's what keeps you going. And it's your job is to find these things, these levels of things to keep you inspired. It's important to keep your body and your mind inspired. If you don't get inspired, it's going to become a job. And if it's a job, it becomes arduous and it becomes tiresome. Mm -hmm. But if you are inspired and if you respect your cast and your crew, you walk onto the set with joy and you want to wake up the next day. As opposed to you don't want to wake up the next day. You want to wake up. You want to get to the set uh, because this is your love. Uh, it's a creative release and it's a beautiful feeling. Now, uh, during the last couple episodes of season three, there was a major stylistic change in how the show looked. Um, was that part uh, helpful in you refueling your brain uh, at the end of that season? Did that contribute a little bit to... So so you're specifically talking the end of season three and not just in general? Yes. Okay. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, You obviously observed something uh, that makes me smile. I I appreciate that. You know, when I got to my last two episodes, uh, episodes seven and eight, they were my last two episodes. Mm. Um, They were directed by a, a wonderful woman, sharp woman, creative woman, Deborah Kampmeyer. And these particular scripts that we received was exactly that. It was, it gave us the opportunity to think way out of the box for Star Trek because of the nature of our particular scripts that was handed to us. We were dealing with a cat and mouse chase between the captain on the Titan ship versus the captain, Captain Vatic, on the Shrike ship. Right. which was played by Amanda Plummer. So because it was a cat and mouse chase between these two ships circling each other, it gave us the creative license to be a little more aggressive, a little more aggressive with our approach to lighting. Therefore, I would have beams coming in through the windows, slashes of lights, flares. Sometimes I would have these gigantic flares in the backgrounds, just flaring the lens and exploding over us. And you would ask yourself, well, how does that make sense in, in, a, in a Star Trek world? We're out in, you know, in space. Yeah. How do you justify a beam coming in through a window? But in my, our own minds, the beam would either be coming from the opposing ship that's right. trying to destroy us with their technology on their particular ship, so you can justify it that way. There's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes one side of the ship, there's the sun, you know, and therefore if it's the sun, that's hard light, that's warm light, that's a hard shaft coming through the window on one side of that ship. Or if it's not the sun, and if it's just maybe a moon 
or a planet that's in a distance, maybe that light would be soft, right? cooler looking mm -hmm. to justify those two opposing energies of light coming through the windows. Maybe there's a nebula outside the windows. In this particular case, there was lots of nebulas. Right. Bingo. So if there's lots of nebulas, it gave us the creative license to now think about the kinetic, frenetic energy of lighting. Is the mm -hmm. lights from these nebulas swirling? Are they multicolored? Are they flickering? Are they pulsing? Is there lightning going off where it's flashing inside of the set? So it gave us those licenses to be a little more aggressive with the lighting mm -hmm. on those particular episodes. I think they stand out because of that. And I hope they stand out in a good way. I hope they do. I'm proud and of it's, that. It's the capper to the main story and the main villain that we've been with through the whole season. Yes, exactly. And that's how we executed for that reason. Yeah, uh, it yeah. was just that seed to start off that, that cap. Well, I want to ask you, because Star Trek has been blessed with some incredible DPs going all the way back to yes. Jerry Spinnerman on the original Star Trek. But, of course, John Alonzo on Generations. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a there's a history of some really terrific uh, DPs throughout the history yes. of Star Trek. Did you, is this something where Dan Mandel, who did the J.J. movies, did you go back and look at any of these films or did you not want to be influenced by what had come before? No, that's a very good question. I mean, a lot of times you don't want to be influenced, but to be influenced is education. Right. And like I said, just put it in your brain, put it in your subconscious, let it be part of the education. Then it's up to you, your character, your heart, your thumbprint, your creative spontaneity. When you get to the set, you will execute it in your way, of course. So I was not afraid of that. So, yes, I mean, I looked at, you know, when I first started, you know, I, I looked at my, my most favorite film in the sci-fi genre. I think it's the old time classic film, you know, Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. Absolutely. Uh, shot by Jeffrey Unsworth, you know. So I looked at that, just for the feeling, the vibe of it. Again, just to get that in my head. What I loved about that, you know, when you looked at these helmets and you're seeing all these kinetic uh, forms of light on the on the reflections of the shields, you know, from space, the kaleidoscope of colors coming in, I, that really electrified me. You know, of course, I looked at, you know, all of the alien movies just for the hell of it. You know, and uh, what was very, very important to me, you mentioned Dan Mendel. You know, I looked at the J.J. Abrams uh, Star Treks and I super, super loved them. I love what Dan Mendel was doing. That's my personality. I love that that kinetic uh, high energy of lighting and flaring. I love a lot of flares with the lens because when you see a flare, it's like a canvas. It When the light dances on the lens coating of a lens, Every lens has different kinds of coatings, mm -hmm. the way they coat the lens, the way a light hits it. And I was designing these lenses at the very beginning uh, with Dan Sasaki at Panavision Woodland Hills, you know, to deal with the lens coatings in a way that I liked it with my partner at the time, Jimmy Lindsay, because right. I wanted to have heavy flares. I welcomed the flares. When a light hit the lens, I wanted it to refract and to right. bloom and to flare, because that to me is a dance of light. And it's very kinetic. It's very organic. You feel like it's a brush stroke of, of a painter with their brush. And that's it's how we feel as a cinematographer. When you feel that flare, you know, it's our brush stroke of light. It's so the I energy barely being controlled. And you, you got to love that because yeah. that spontaneity of that uncontrolled light sometimes is so organic and it's impulsive that, uh, you know, it, it gives you that, that feeling 
of, uh, of, of realism. Nothing was so calculated and so perfect. There was some slop factor to it. Mm-hmm. When you see the slop factor, uh, it's much more organic. And when yeah. it's organic that way, I think the audience subconsciously will will sit back, take the ride of that story, be involved in it. Feels more real. Outside of it. You know, you don't want to be outside looking in. You want to be within it. Yeah. And it's those things that we do as cinematographers, the smoke and mirrors aspect of it all, to bring the audience inside of that screen. Right. You know, a simple thing, I bring this up all the time, a simple camera move that I love, and it's the most simplest move you can do, is when a, and when an actor is, is acting and, and saying a line or, or saying a monologue, perhaps, yeah, you know, fun. and you, exactly, you feel that camera go in yeah. imperceptibly. It's not a fast dolly in. You don't know when it started because yeah. it's feathered so smoothly by the dolly grip. You don't know when it started, but all of a sudden you find yourself moving in. But yeah. you're not aware that the camera is moving in. What you're aware of is your your mind is now becoming inside of their mind. Right. You are now inside of their skulls. More connected the with the performance. And then when you get to a close-up, when those eyes their eyes start becoming closer to your eyes by you pushing in and you're looking at those eyes and you're looking through the eyes, you feel as if they're right in front of you, talking Mm -hmm. to you. And as an audience member, that's a fantastic thing. A simple thing as a push-in. And if you want to put the cherry on the cake, if it's a really uplifting tag to to the monologue or whatever, as you're pushing in, a very simple thing is to boom down. Right. And as you're booming down, what they're happens? They're raising up yeah. in frame. So by them rising up, gives them a sense of power, uh, of strength. Um, and it's a really fantastic feel that their their presence are giving you. If, if they're being lambasted and they're, they're being ridiculed, for instance, and, and, and you know, uh, an emotion of that sort, you know, you may want to boom down. You know, all of a sudden it makes them feel, I mean, I'm sorry, you may want to boom up rather. You right, know, to make them look like up diminutive. Them smaller. Yeah. Exactly. So it's those little things that become very powerful uh, to a cinematographer, to a director, when we tell our story visually. Yeah. Visual language. That's exactly what we do. And speaking of visual language, you know, I tell a lot of students of mine, you know, I travel a lot. And by way of traveling, you know, you're always on an airplane. And when you're on an airplane, uh, you know, you're sitting in your seat. What's in front of you? There's another seat in front of you with a monitor and people are watching movies, whatever right. whatever you're watching. There it is in front of you on, on the back of the headrest. I never, ever, ever watch a film with sound on, ever. Mm-hmm. All right. I purposely watch a film without the sound because I want to be able to see if I can understand the story of yep. what's going on by way of the photography, right. by way of the, the visual language of storytelling, to feel their emotions. I want to know exactly what's going on in a story without the words. Yeah. So I use it as an exercise. And it's a fantastic thing. And, and I, it's a perpetual learning. You know, this is what we do as artists. It's perpetual. You, you never just finish learning your craft. You know, just when you think you learn something, you have it all, you know, you realize, you know what, now that I know that, I'm aware of something that I was not aware of before. Now I'm starting all back all over again. Now I'm learning it all over again in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so like, this is- like my analogy. I, I said that I was a martial artist. You know, when I became a black belt, 
that's when I first started to learn the martial arts. Just because I came a black belt, that didn't mean I was a professional all of a sudden. No, that's when I first started to learn what yeah. the martial arts was really about. Prior to that was knowledge, was exercise, was conditioning, was discipline, was yeah. learning the rules, how to break the rules. Why do I want to break the rules? Should I break the rules? You know, that's what it's all about. Then you get to a certain place and you realize, you know what? I got much more to learn than I thought. Because the more knowledge I have, now I'm aware the more knowledge is out there that I was unaware of. Yeah. So it's a crazy thing what we do as artists. And of course, with all the technology coming out every single day, I mean, my God, yeah, your brain has to be an encyclopedia, you know, with these cameras. I don't know how the camera assistants do it anymore, learning yeah. these menus from one camera to the next. It's crazy. Yeah, and you shoot on the Alexa. <laughs> yes. And I shoot on the Alexa... Uh, because in my humble opinion, uh, there's a lot of DPs, you know, they, they feel differently, of course. Uh, but in my humble opinion, you know, the Alexa was more of a film-friendly look. Mm -hmm. right. It was much more softer. It had much more organicness to its look. You know, and, and of course, that's not gold standard. You want everything to look like it was shot on a film. You know, yeah. that's the irony of it all, you know. And a lot of times these uh, these uh, cameras, these digital cameras are so sharp that sometimes it's too sharp and it looks like, you know, six o'clock news. Yeah. It looks like video. And then we find ourselves putting on these cheap, you know, $20 filters on top of these, you know, $50,000 lenses because yeah. they're too sharp, they're too yeah. good, you know? So, but that's why I like Alexis uh, is because it had that film friendly, the film friendly feel. Right. And uh, I've always stayed with that. Well, I have to say one of the things that's so great about Star Trek is how elastic the format is in that you can go from the look of Jerry Finnerman to, to Richard Klein doing Star Trek The Motion Picture to Gain Resher. What he did was different than what Richard did on Star Trek II and Charles Carell on three, And, you know, John Alonzo was just doing something completely on his own trip on Generations. Yeah. And then to, you know, what you guys are doing in, in the present day. And it's exciting to see that uh, evolve. And we're so appreciative of you taking the time to talk about your approach to this universe. Thank this you. Very it's rich my, my honor. And it was a great time talking to you and so interesting. And uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you, Crescenzo. Thank you. Thank I you. super appreciate that. And by saying that, I just want to say one thing. You know, I'm a below the line member. I'm below the line. So to get recognition, to get a tap on the back, to get people like you to have conversations with me as a below the line member of our community is really fantastic because we don't get much of that opportunity. You know, all the glory all the press, all the conversations, they always go to above the line most of the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm generalizing, of course, but you know what I'm saying. Go that to is the, true. Goes to the, directors, the, the yeah. actors and the showrunners, producers, yeah. all that. But we as below the line, you know, we are, in my humble opinion, we are the backbone. We are the backbone to execute these stories, these visions, these ideas. We are the backbone. So for people like you to talk to people like me, I thank you. Very well, much. I, I think Aaron would agree strongly. As a member of the art department, <laughs> I, I'm right there with you, brother. <laughs> so you can understand, yes. Aaron well, so is always appreciative that he gets to talk to us. It's well, it, 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 it was great, and we can't wait to see what you do next. So thank you, Crescenzo. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Okay, so take much. care. Bye-bye. Well, 
There you go. What a what a what a fascinating guy. I I, a I love of that energy. Guy. He was terrific. He really Although did. I think his, his I love his the, passion. I feel bad that he's so shy and, and <laughs> about speaking. He really hesitated to just kind of lay it all out there for Maybe us. Maybe someday and, he'll uh, open, get up out of his shell. Yeah, it's funny yeah, because him. I had a lot more I could have asked about Star Trek. But we'd spent so much time on, on, on time Sergio Leone and his early and, career, and just, Mulcahy, you know, <laughs> which is fine. I have no, no, I have no, I have no regrets. Like, those are the best parts of the conversation. You know, what we didn't ask him about what he shot Farrah Fawcett. All of me. I had that on Laserdisc. Oh my goodness! <laughs> okay, and uh, luminous Farrah Fawcett, the luminous Farrah Fawcett, star of Logan's Run. Um, but, uh, and I, I'm sure he had great stories about that too. Um, but that might require going out, going out to drinks and getting those stories, uh, or deck 78, or deck 78. Exactly. Um, and speaking of deck 78, um, you can subscribe to our, um, uh, subscriber only podcast deck 78, where we talk about Star Trek adjacent topics. And, uh, we've had some great shows recently. We have some Fabulous shows coming up. So uh, if you want to have access to every Deck 78 before anyone can ever listen to it, you want to subscribe to TrexpertsPlus.com, TrexpertsPlus.com, which will also give you access to the Trexpert screening room where you can join Darren, myself, and Ashley as we screen significant genre movies. Um, so that's exciting. And of course, uh, we're going to be at San Diego later this year. If you want to, uh, later this month, um, if you want to join us for Inglorious Trexpress Live, and of course, uh, later uh, at the end of the month at Raleigh, Raleigh, you said it, yeah, that's right, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, where we got a bunch of exciting panels coming up, and I'm thrilled to announce that we'll be joined by Eric Jendrinson, who, um, the writer of uh, Star Trek: The Beginning as well as uh, the co-writer of Mission Impossible, uh, Dead Reckoning, and um, Band of Brothers will be joining us for one panel. We'll also be doing uh, a panel on uh, 1982, Greatest Geek Year Ever, uh, currently airing on The CW with um, uh, Barry Boswick, Laura Banks, and special guest Charlie DeLazarica. Um, talking about Blade Runner and Dangerous Days. So that's that's going to be really terrific. we got some other great panels, and uh, uh, we'll be announcing those shortly. And then, of course, uh, we'll be at the mother of all dragons, uh, not Dragon Con, we'll be <laughs> at uh, the 57-year mission convention in Las Vegas. Uh, this is the big Star Trek get-together conclave. Uh, and uh, we'll be there doing several panels uh, there, and we'll be joined by the Brothers Tipton and some other special guests as well. So we hope you'll join us for that. And, of course, in uh, Labor Day weekend, we'll be back in Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas, uh, for another great Galaxy Con. And so there's a lot of ways to catch the Trexperts as we make our way around these United States and mispronounce people's names everywhere. Um, so uh, <laughs> Or misidentify wanna, them completely. If you want to share your thoughts about this or any other episode, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, or of course on social, follow us on Twitter at Inglorious Trek or on Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts or Facebook. So uh, until next week, when we bring you an all new episode of Inglorious <laughs> Trexperts, on behalf of Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, Ingloriously, of course.